welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Employment Group. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman and I'm a senior associate in the team. I have with me Kate Brearley, an employment partner in our group. We hope you're all keeping safe and well during these strange and troubling times. I'm sure it will come as no surprise to you that the topic of today's podcast is COVID-19 and its implications for employment law. This pandemic has had an unprecedented impact upon national and global economies and has required employers to make quick decisions relating to their workforce. Many of these decisions relate to legislative changes made by government, from the much talked about furlough leave to payment of statutory sick pay. We have sent out a number of e-alerts relating to these changes, which can be found on the Stevenson Harwood website. If you'd like to receive these updates, please don't hesitate to get in contact with us. Many of these changes, in particular, the coronavirus job retention scheme, which underpins furlough leave, have been made quickly and are continually evolving. So far, there have been seven iterations of the government guidance for employers on the job retention scheme and a number of material changes made to that scheme. Organisations have had to react quickly to the moving goalposts and master the intricacies of a scheme, the details of which are continually being built on. Our update on the 17th of April sets out the position as at the date of recording this podcast on the 24th of April. To make matters more difficult for employers, it's important that they are already thinking about future potential issues arising out of the use of furlough leave. And that's what this podcast will focus on. I agree, Richard. This is a time to be proactive moving forward and employers will benefit from thinking about how furlough leave may be concluded at this early stage. For example, will there ultimately be redundancies? And if so, do collective consultation obligations mean that the redundancy process needs to be started sooner rather than later? If the government's job retention scheme does expire on 30th of June, as it's currently intended to do, how close to that date would an employer need those redundancies to be effected? On a connected note, if employees currently on furlough are to come back to work following the end of the government scheme, is it practical for them to return on their previous terms or will alternative arrangements need to be made? For example, variations to hours and pay or other creative solutions such as sabbaticals, study leave or secondments. Thought will need to be given to which arrangements will work for an organisation and the answer to that question could require imminent action. Employers who consider the implications of the end of furlough leave now will have greater flexibility and fewer unpleasant surprises than those who take an out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach to employees on furlough leave. Prior to considering next steps, it's worth recapping with a very high-level overview of the furlough scheme. In March 2020, the Chancellor announced the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme. The primary aim of the scheme is to protect jobs due to the impact of COVID-19. Under the scheme, employees can be designated as furloughed and subsequently placed on what is now known as furlough leave. This allows employers to claim a grant from HMRC covering 80% of each employee's salary up to a cap of £2,500 plus associated national insurance contributions and, and this is important, minimum level pension contributions. To qualify for the scheme, employees must have been on the payroll as at 19th of March 2020. Uh, remember, the original date was the 28th of February 2020, but that was subsequently changed. 
The minimum period of furlough leave is three weeks. Employees on furlough leave must not work for the employer who has furloughed them. More specifically, they mustn't do anything that what's known as generating revenue. However, furloughed employees can undertake training, volunteer or undertake employment with a different employer. Recent analysis by the Resolution Foundation suggests that up to 9 million people across the UK will take part in the furlough scheme. Obviously, placing employees on furlough leave represents a significant change for businesses. It is undoubtedly providing relief and alleviating short-term pressure for both employers and employees, but there are a number of tricky issues to be considered. We identified a number of those tricky issues in a recent e-alert we sent out. It is definitely worth a read. Since that update, the HMRC furlough portal opened on Monday the 20th of April and a reported 140,000 employers made claims in the portal on its first day. The first funding from the scheme is due to be received on the 30th of April this year. Many employers are also acutely aware that the issues caused by COVID-19 are not solely financial. Isolation is undoubtedly a difficult time for both individual employees and their families. Employers are ideally placed to provide additional support through regular communication. There are various forms this can take. Virtual coffee mornings and quiz nights provide a great starting point for instigating team cohesion and solidarity. Such meetings, along with regular updates about the organisation, allowing employees to stay up to date, promotes a sense of inclusivity to counteract the idea of a two-tier workforce between employees on furlough leave and those who are not. I agree, Richard. As we discussed in our recent mental health e-alert regarding how best to protect employees' mental health, regular communication is important and that applies both to employees on furlough leave and those who are working remotely from home. Regular communication also enables both employers and employees to devise a way in which the furlough leave works best for them. One option, for example, is to implement a rotational furlough mechanism where employees are rotated between periods of work and periods of furlough. The minimum furlough period an employee must fulfil is three consecutive weeks. Whilst rotational furloughing won't be appropriate for all organisations, it is a valid approach for those employers where the workflow is reduced but not halted altogether, thereby requiring some but not all of the workforce to be operational at any particular time. This approach of rotational furloughing also allows employees to utilise their staffs at particular times of business need without compromising the support which the job retention scheme offers. If salaries are not being topped up to 100%, this also allows employees an equal opportunity to earn full pay for some periods of time. Rotational furloughing therefore has the added benefit of avoiding the creation of a two-tier workforce. However, any decision by an employer to rotate employees on furlough leave must be documented correctly. Whether this needs to be in the form of a written agreement with the employee or simply a written notification is not entirely currently clear and is a matter for some debate. But in our view, an undoubtedly best practice is to get a written agreement with the employee. Ideally, this documentation would provide sufficient flexibility for the employer to permit a range of options relating to the end of furlough leave. For some employers, this will not be possible. And whilst this may not be appropriate in every case, it is worth considering and knowing why it has been rejected. An additional problem presented by rotational furlough is the current climate. It may not be as simple as employees returning upon the employer's request for a variety of reasons, 
For example, the employee may have childcare responsibilities or the employee may simply be unwilling to travel to come into work. And particularly that's the case if the travel involves using public transport where social distancing may be difficult. Those same issues are likely to apply at the end of any period of furlough leave, whether as part of a rotation or otherwise. Employers do need to be aware that there is statutory protection for employees relating to health and safety issues at work, uh, both in the health and safety legislation and in the Employment Rights Act. And those particular provisions are being relied on, particularly by some unions in certain sectors at the moment. So if you have a concern, for example, if an employee says raises those issues, then it's important to give us a call and we can guide you through them. In order to resolve or prevent potential issues, employers should consider whether there are adjustments necessary to promote a safe place of work, including reorganising workplaces so social distancing is possible, or alternatively enabling employees to continue to work from home or to start working from home where they haven't previously been doing so. Rotational furloughing may in itself not be appropriate for the work in question, for example, if it, result, if it interrupts workflow or the employee's tasks, cannot be divided easily with other rotating employees. Moving forward, as mentioned at the outset of this podcast, employers should start planning for the end of furlough leave and the end of any remote working, whenever they may be. Whilst uncertainty is going to continue, by considering the potential issues which may arise in the future now, businesses will be best placed to deal with them in real time. As mentioned previously, subject to any further extension, the job retention scheme will end on the 30th of June 2020. Employers need to reflect now upon how they wish to structure the return to work of their staff. Naturally, this will depend in part upon the sector in which they operate. For example, the demand for workforce will vary between the hospitality industry, in which venues are unlikely to be at full capacity immediately upon opening, and hairdressers, which I suspect will be at capacity again very quickly. The best way to orchestrate the return ultimately depends upon the needs and structure of each individual business. We're happy to discuss any individual business needs with you. Despite this, there are questions universal to all employers operating under the scheme. Firstly, who do you want to return to work and when do you want them to return to work? If it is the return to work of the entire furloughed workforce all at the same time and on their prior terms and conditions, then that is relatively simple. That's provided the initial letters placing the employees on furlough leave are appropriately drafted. However, that scenario is unlikely to be viable for many employers. If redundancies are being contemplated, then employers should promptly check whether collective consultation obligations are likely to be triggered. And I'll talk more about that towards the end of this podcast. It's important to note that in the context of collective consultation obligations, redundancy has a wider meaning than simply a disappearing job. Essentially, it covers dismissals which are not related to the individual concerned or for a number of reasons which are not so related. That definition can extend to situations beyond simply where the need to do a specific job has ended. For example, it will include scenarios where employers propose to dismiss employees in situations where they had proposed to re-engage them on new terms and conditions of employment. And Kate will come on to that in a bit. Employers may also want to consider ending their workforce's furlough leave incrementally so they do not have all employees permanently returning to work at the same time if business need is not there. If this is a possibility, then employers should already be thinking about how to do that and not lose the benefit of the government's job retention scheme. For example, ensuring that all periods of furlough leave are for at least three weeks. 
This is likely to take some more thought if the return to work of employees is going to be staggered. The next question for employers to consider is what changes might there be for staff returning to work? For many organisations, the effects of coronavirus on business demand will likely far outlast the support offered from the government's job retention scheme. That could, of course, result in having to reduce costs via redundancies, as you discussed, Richard, but it could also require a change in the way business and their staff work. This would very likely result in an employer having to change terms and conditions of its employees. Of course, this is also a way to reduce costs as well, because potential changes could include reduction in pay, changes to duties or working hours, particularly shorter working hours, or implementing new programmes such as job shares. For those of us who were around at the time, similar variations to contracts proved popular following the 2008 financial crisis. Some employers at the time offered to entice employees to accept the changes in terms. Uh, For example, when looking to get employees to agree to accept a reduction in hours, pay was reduced on a less than proportionate basis. However, a note of caution to bear in mind is that when the market recovered following that financial crisis and financial stability returned, some organisations struggled to encourage their workforce to return to the hours and pay on which they were originally engaged because the employees had quite frankly become used to and rather liked the idea of working a shorter working week. There are a range of options available to employers who are looking to vary the employment contracts of their workforce and what is likely to be most appropriate and effective will depend on the particular circumstances. However, some of those options will require action sooner rather than later, and that's particularly so where the collective consultation obligations are triggered. Yes, and of course, unfortunately, the economic effect of coronavirus will result in some organisations having to make redundancies. In fact, a recent CIPD study estimated that one in four UK employers expects to make redundancies directly because of COVID-19. If that is a possibility, whether during furlough leave or when the job retention scheme ends, businesses should be considering how that will be affected as early as now. That, of course, doesn't mean that they have to go through with such redundancies. But if the possibility is left adrift, then they could be in a very difficult position when the workload, or more appropriately, the lack of the workload, requires those redundancies. The law requires that when an employer proposes to dismiss as redundant 20 or more employees at one establishment within a 90-day period, collective consultation is required. The minimum period of collective consultation is 30 days before the first dismissal where the relevant number of employees is between 20 and 99, and where the relevant number of employees is 100 or more, 45 days before the first dismissal. It is no coincidence that the extension of the government's job retention scheme to the 30th of June 2020 allows employers to collectively consult for the 45-day period prior to that scheme ending. So on the issue of collective uh, consultation, of course, some employers will already have appropriate representatives in place. And the easy example of that is where an employer recognises a trade union with whom they will then be obliged by statute to consult. However, many employers will not have an appropriate body of employee representatives with whom to consult. And therefore, before collective consultation can take place, and therefore this is a timing issue, the employer will need to deal with the election of appropriate representatives with whom they're going to engage in the collective consultation process. 
Of course, the ongoing lockdown and furlough scheme may cause difficulty in, in implementing the practicalities of an election process and consultation. By way of example, if necessary, in regard to maintaining the secrecy of the ballot used to elect representatives, that is likely to have to take place electronically. And employers do need to be thinking about these practicalities at this stage. But it is worth bearing in mind that there is nothing in the furlough scheme which prevents either the election of employee representatives or indeed a collective consultation process taking place whilst the furlough scheme is running. Alongside that election process, or even before, an employer can take steps to identify which roles are potentially at risk of redundancy and what it proposes the selection criteria will be. An employer should be aware that any information and documents created at this stage will be disclosable in any subsequent litigation unless the discussions are in conjunction with legal advisors' advice and privilege applies. Kate, there's also a potential exemption in relation to the minimum collective consultation periods I mentioned earlier, isn't there? Yes, that's right. Essentially, where there are special circumstances which render it not reasonably practicable to consult in good time, then the employer need not fully comply with the duty. However, and this is important, that exception has been applied very narrowly through the years and the extension of the government's job retention scheme will make it even harder to rely on in coronavirus-related circumstances. Even where an employer cannot consult collectively for the required period of time, what the employer should do is carry out the consultation as far in advance as possible to give themselves the best chance of defending litigious claims and minimising any protective awards for failure to collectively consult that an employment tribunal may make. Yes, it's worth noting that the compensation that an employment tribunal can award for failing to collectively consult as the law requires is a protected award of up to 90 days pay per affected employee. And that rate of pay is not capped like it is for many employment-related compensatory awards. Quite, Richard, and that's just one potential liability an employer could be left with if the appropriate future planning is not undertaken. So just drawing together the principles that Richard and I have been talking about in terms of how a business should be planning for the future in relation to its workforce, I think these are the these are the key things. First of all, what workforce do you anticipate needing? What does the structure of that workforce look like? For example, if you have particular departments, will you need all of those departments or will you need some people in each of those departments? Also, for those employees who are going to return to the business, will they return on their current terms or will you as an employer be looking to vary those terms, for example, by reducing hours? Do you have appropriate representatives or a trade union in place already with whom to collectively consult? If not, how will an election process be carried out and when? Also, what would the selection criteria look like for any redundancy? Thanks, Kate. And thanks for listening. If anyone would like any additional information on any of the issues covered in this podcast or wider queries about the impacts of COVID-19 upon employment and labour aspects of your business, please do not hesitate to contact Kate, myself or another member of the Stevenson Harwood employment team. We're here to assist with your queries. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes or Stitcher or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. Mm-hmm.